What separates the one who passionately, without inhibitions, truly, not not in a fake way, but truly worships Jesus on a Sunday morning and the person who looks like they're waiting in line at the DMV? And so I've been up here, I've led worship, I've seen both. I've seen people kind of stone-faced when we're singing about the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the greatness of God. I've seen people uh, belting it out, hands raised, and I've seen people look like they have a stomachache when they're singing worship songs. What's the difference? What's the difference between those two people? What's the difference between the person who's willingly giving their life and sacrificing time and energy to further God's purposes and the person who says, well, if I can fit it into my busy schedule, I guess I could give God an hour or two this month. What sets apart the one who displays a vibrant, real love for Jesus and the one who is maybe Christian in name only? And the answer to this question is multifaceted, and we're not going to be able to answer it completely today, but we'll begin to answer it today. And we'll do that by looking at Luke 7. Everybody turn to Luke 7. Turn to Luke 7, go to verse 36. As we talked about, Jesus uses parables all the time when he teaches his disciples, when he teaches the Pharisees, when he teaches people. We'll talk about what a parable is, but there are parables all throughout the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there's a group of parables that are unique to Luke that you find in no other gospel but Luke. And so for the next seven to eight weeks, we're actually gonna be looking at those gospels or those parables in those gospels that are unique to the gospel of Luke. And so look at seven, look at verse seven or chapter seven, verse 36 in Luke. If you don't have your Bible in front of you, that's okay. You can just pull out the Bible, type in Luke seven, and it'll pop up on your phone. We use the ESV here, uh, and we'll be working through that together. But look at Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees, asked him, that being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, 
She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So go back up to 36, verse 36. We're going to read through this together. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Pharisees, most of us know, if you grew up in the church, we know a little bit about Pharisees, but if you didn't, Pharisees were the most influential of the three major Jewish Jewish sects. You had Essenes, which were kind of separatists. You know, they kind of went out, they were monks, kind of did their own thing. You had the Sadducees, very politically involved, a little bit theologically off. And then you had the Pharisees. They were the, the leaders of the common man, and they had an extensive system of rules and traditions that they heaped on top of the Bible. So they made rules that surrounded God's laws so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's laws. So they had rules upon rules upon rules that you couldn't break. And they, they said, you as normal folks should follow these rules, should follow these rules so that you too won't break or even get close to breaking any of God's laws. And and the term Pharisee actually just means separate. And that's how they were viewed. Oh, those guys over there, man, they are really religious. They're more religious than I could ever be. And while not all Pharisees were enemies of Jesus, he opposed the proud, the hypocritical, the self-righteous Pharisees who thought God was happy with their religiosity, even though they ignored the greater parts of God's law, like justice and mercy and grace and love. And so one of these Pharisees, his name is Simon, he invites Jesus over for a meal. Now, we don't know if this was inside, outside, But we know that there's a table when you invited a guest over. You were to be hospitable. There's a table that was on the ground. And you would lay with your feet kind of sticking out like the hub, like spokes from a hub is how people would kind of lay around the table. And you would face the guest of honor and you would eat. And so all of this happens. Jesus comes over. This Pharisee invites Simon. And then someone interrupts the party. Someone interrupts the party. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, we have seen a similar situation. We actually preached on this a few weeks ago of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus's feet right before his death. This is a completely different situation, although there'll be some some similar themes here. But this woman of great sin, now we don't know exactly 
what this woman has done. Some say she was a prostitute. We don't know that. Uh, All we know is that she knows she's a sinner. The community knows that she's a sinner. Uh, She has a lot of red in her ledger. And she hears that this Jesus is, is coming to town. And he's at Simon's house. And so she runs all the way home and she gets this alabaster flask of ointment, of perfume. And she kind of brings it in. I, I don't know if she came in nervously or just came in boldly, but she comes in and she breaks down. And her tears hit Jesus' feet. And so she takes her hair and she wipes away those tears and she kisses Jesus' feet. And she keeps on kissing Jesus' feet. And she anoints Jesus' feet with oil. Now, if you invited someone to your house and you're eating and a stranger comes in and starts to kiss the feet of your guest, I mean, you would think that is weird. They thought it was weird then in some ways. Culturally, this would have been seen as an improper uninhibited act of affection. Improper, uninhibited act of affection. It says she wiped his feet with her hair. Taking your hair down. We talked about this when we talked about Mary of Bethany. Taking your hair down in this culture in front of someone other than your husband would have been seen as scandalous. Now, one commentator said it would have been like a woman going out today without her top on. It'd be a similar sort of improper. This isn't the right situation for what's happening right now. And she takes her hair down and she wipes his feet with her tears and anoints his feet. Usually, if you had a guest over, you would anoint their head. This was an act of hospitality. Only the head was anointed because it was an honorable part of the body. And so you'd anoint their head, you would refresh their face, and you would have a servant, the help, the lowest of lows, you would have them wash their feet with water. That was the proper way to handle things. The feet were dishonorable. Feet are gross. I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, feet are kind of weird. And the idea of just kissing somebody's feet, uh, they walked around with sandals. We know this. So their feet were covered with dirt, animal feces. So washing a person's feet was just something you did as a good host. And Simon doesn't do it, but she does with her tears. And she anoints his feet, not his head, but his feet with oil. Even Jesus' feet are honorable and worth anointing for this woman. This is an act of devotion. This is an act of love, reverence. And it rubs the Pharisee the wrong way. The Pharisee is sitting there on the sidelines watching all this happen at the table and just like, this is disgusting. What is happening here is gross And improper. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, 
for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. I mean, Simon is over here. The Pharisee's over. He's like, come on, man. Her hair is down. The kids are watching. Like, do you know where her hands have been? And you're letting her touch you? A prophet would never let this happen. Therefore, you must not be a prophet. And then Jesus says, Simon, Jesus knows what he's thinking. He says, Simon, I I have something to tell you, which is ancient Near Eastern for Simon, I am going to be blunt with you and you are not going to like it. And and Simon goes, okay, say it, teacher. What do you have to say? 41, a certain money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus tells a parable. Now, if you don't know what a parable is, it's really just a story with a point. And guys, we do this all the time in our culture. Most of our bedtime books with our kids are a story with some sort of moral lesson or or how to interact with others. Uh, I mean, my kids, we read Bernstein Bears books and I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Bernstein Bears books because the dad in those books is always just an idiot. He's always just kind of dumb and gets into trouble and creates all the problems. And dads, we don't ever do that. And so I don't like that. Uh, But what I do like is there's always kind of some moral lesson with Bernstein Bears books. And one of the most popular ones that we read in my home over and over one, over and over again was called Get the Gimmies. Have you guys ever read that Bernstein Bears book, Get the Gimmies? The idea is brother and sister bear, they go to the store and every time they go to the store, they throw a fit because they want candy, they want toys. And when they leave, they want candy and they want toys and they break down and they have these emotional breakdowns. They get the gimmies. Now, this parable in my family, I feel like, has been more impactful in teaching a lesson about materialism and greed than me just saying, why do you whine every time we go to the grocery store? Why do you throw a fit every time we go to the grocery store? There are times where my kids say something, I'm going to go, are you getting the gimmies? Are you getting the gimmies? That's how parables work. They often work more than a direct command or rebuke. They capture our hearts and they move us to truth. And so Jesus tells this parable to get to Simon's heart. And he says there's one moneylender and there's two debtors. One owes 10 times more than the other, 500 denarii, 50 denarii. And you're like, well, how much are we really talking about here? Well, in today's days, you know, the average income of a person in Castle Rock is around $60,000. It's getting hard to live in Castle Rock with a income of that. Uh, But that would be like a person who makes six, two people who make $60,000, one person owing $100,000 and the other person owing $10,000. That's a big difference. If you come to me and say we're $10,000 in debt, I'd say, you know, Dave Ramsey would kind of shake his head at you. If you came to me and said I'm $100,000 in debt, 
I would say Dave Ramsey probably is going to have a nervous breakdown talking to you. And so there's just a difference in money there. There's a great debt and a decent size debt, but maybe not as big as the other. And they can't pay it back. Both can't pay it back. They got bills to pay. They have donkeys to feed. Uh, you had a lot of kids back then. And they just couldn't pay it back. And so the moneylender says, hey, guys, both of you, your debt is forgiven. Now, money lenders, I don't know if you know, money lenders never do that. They never do that. Imagine your, 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 your mortgage broker or bank calling you and just said, hey, man, we're good. House is yours. We're good. You'd be like, that is amazing. And so Jesus turns to Simon and he says, which one out of these two people is going to love Mr. Money Lender more? And Simon says, I suppose. I like that. He's like, well, I suppose. He knows he's been beat. He knows he's been bested. He says, well, I suppose the one who, who's been forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus pats him on the back and says, good job, Simon. Good job, Simon. And here's the point of the parable. One who is forgiven more is likely to show greater love. One who is forgiven more is likely to show greater love. Let's keep going. Let's get through this. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So Jesus has just told the parable and he goes, all right, back to reality. Let's play a compare and contrast game, Simon, with you and this sinful woman. Let's, let's just see the difference between you two and how all of this has played out. You didn't wash my feet with water, which would have been a very hospitable thing to do. It would have been great to have some clean feet to eat this meal with. She washed my feet with her tears. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. Now, generally, you don't see two men kissing each other on the cheek uh, when they come into church today or when they come into somebody's house. But in the day, greeting somebody with a kiss, an equal would have just been a common greeting, a handshake. How you doing? You didn't even do that, Jesus, or do that, Simon. And Jesus says, this, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. In fact, even now, through the parable, as I've been telling this story, she is still kissing my feet. Like she's still down here. He says, you did not anoint my head with oil to refresh my face. She has anointed my feet with oil. She has done much to show love. Simon, you are a bad host. So Jesus says, which actually would have broken uh, cultural norms at that time for the guest to give a negative review to the host. And so Jesus is like, if, the, if B&B were around, I would rate you poorly. I would give you one star. Simon, 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 you have been an inhospitable host. You have not welcomed me and you have not loved me like this woman. And the question is, is, why is he 
such an inhospitable host to Jesus? And part of the answer is in him being a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, his righteousness was connected to his adherence to certain aspects of the law. Most likely, he didn't think he needed forgiveness. I'm a Pharisee. I'm religious. And what little sin I have through my obedience, it's made up for. So I don't need forgiveness. And the idea that a sinful woman, a sinful person like this, could find forgiveness by their association with Jesus Christ is unthinkable. He sees no reason to honor Jesus with basic hospitality. She sees every reason to honor him in a way that goes above and beyond basic hospitality. Look at 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. The woman's faith is what saves her, not her love for Jesus. Her faith saves her, And her love is a byproduct of that faith, unlike the Pharisee. She knows the depth of her sin and the debt she cannot pay back to God. Yet she has faith that Jesus alone offers forgiveness. And that truth was like a spring well in her heart, just welling up affection and love and praise and devotion. She didn't care what she looked like. She didn't care what the others thought of her. She couldn't help but praise Jesus. She loves much. And in contrast, Simon sees himself as not needing forgiveness. There's no debt to be paid. So Jesus is, is not someone you make a fool of yourself over. I want to go back to the question I, I asked at the beginning. What separates the one who displays a vibrant love for and devotion to Jesus and the one who is Christian in name only? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm somewhat religious. You know, I'm a cheester. I go to church on Christmas and Easter. I'm a cheester, a CEO, Christmas, Easter only. I'm one of those. And, and, you know, you know, but, but other than that, you know, I'm religious. I got God. I find my God in the mountains and all those things. But there's no real love for Jesus. What's the difference? Well, here's my answer. The vibrancy of one's love for Jesus correlates to one's view of sin and forgiveness. If you're going to write down something, write down that today. The vibrancy of one's love for Jesus correlates, is related to one's view of sin and forgiveness. Now, we live in Castle Rock, Colorado, a somewhat affluent city. And there are parts where, you know, people are struggling. And if, you know, you're a blue-collar worker, it's not easy to make it. But there's, there's a lot of wealth here. There's a lot of people who've built themselves up. And often, people see themselves through this lens. I'm a pretty good person. 
Like they'll say that, they'll look in the mirror and they'll say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or they'll say, I'm better than most. You know, I tell a white lie every now and then. And, uh, you know, I've never cheated on my wife, though. Or, or I've, I've, you know, I've cut corners at work, but, but I've never murdered anybody. I mean, there's mur- serial killers out there. I'm not bad. You know, overall, there's some rough edges that need to be sanded down. But overall, I'm a good guy. And if that's how I view myself, pretty good. Maybe some imperfections here or there, but my overall sin is small. Then the gospel will be small for you. If you see your sin as as small and offensive, not that big of a deal, then the gospel will be small to you. And your response to that gospel will be very small as well. Piper, John Piper, a famous pastor, he uses this illustration. Imagine you're walking along the beach with a friend and you cut your toe on a seashell. Sorry, I got lost here. (laughs) Your friend happens to have a Band-Aid for you. They patch you up right there. How do you respond? I mean, you're grateful. You say thanks, but, but love for your friend does not stir up on, on any deep levels. You aren't going to let your hair down and anoint their feet and kiss their feet. Hey, thanks for the Band-Aid, and you kind of move on with your life. Now imagine that you and your friend are on a beach and a tsunami sweeps you out to sea just before you drown, your friend pulls you to shore and revives you. He almost dies in the process. Now, how would you respond? Gratitude and affection would immediately swell in your heart. Your love for your friend would overflow in thanks and praise and delight. In this picture right here, of the tsunami and the friend saving you near death. That is the closer picture, the closer biblical picture to sin and forgiveness than than cutting your foot, scraping it on a seashell, and putting a Band-Aid over it. Here's what I mean. Our sin is great, and we need to be saved from it. Our sin is great, and we need to be saved from it. We are the woman in this story, we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, we have inherited sin. The desire to be God and to be like God is in our DNA. Now, that doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could be. I mean, we could all have machetes in here, hacking at each other, attacking each other. But, but what it means is our emotions, our desires, even our good actions are tainted by sin. And as I get older, uh, I realize this more. Yes, as a pastor, I'm growing in Christ's likeness. I'm finding victory over sin. But as I get older the depth and breadth of my sin becomes clearer to me. Sin runs deeper than I initially understood when I first met Jesus. For example, when I was a a pastor, a young pastor, I'd been a pastor for like a year or two. I went to a conference 
And uh, I was still on the fence of whether ministry was for me or not. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't called into ministry. Uh, we just thought it sounded better than teaching at the moment. And so I didn't have a burning bush uh, mo- moment. And so I was like, ah, oh, this sounds better than working out of school. And, and so uh, we went to this conference, or I went to this conference, and I, I heard these famous men, these guys' books that I've read, preaching the gospel passionately in ways that engaged my heart and stirred up emotions and desires. And I told myself, man, I want to commit my life to preaching God's word. I want to do that. And most people at the time were like, go get him, bud. Go to seminary, go get him. Commit your life to that. But with that desire was also a need in my heart for praise and adulation. Here's what, I, here's what I was seeing. I was seeing these famous pastors applauded. They were praised. They were affirmed. People were giving them standing ovations. And in my heart, I was like, I kind of want a standing ovation. It would be really nice one day to be praised and adored and applauded like these guys. So even, even my call to ministry was mixed. That makes sense? Guys, our sin runs deep. Our sin runs deep. And the older I get, the more I can realize, man, pride is, is still a very real thing that I struggle with in my heart. Jealousy is something that I still have to constantly put down to this day. As I still struggle with those things, and the older I get, the bigger my sin gets. Yes, I'm growing in Christ-likeness. But my sin is serious. And I also sin in front of a holy God. Matthew Henry says, there's no such thing as a small sin because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. Our God is unthinkably righteous and just and he must deal with sin and we are told that even the smallest of sins separate us from him now and forever there's nothing that we can do no good work to counteract to make up for our sin to save us we need a savior we are drowning apart from Jesus Christ. We are unable, you may be a little bit better of a paddler than me, Uh, you may swim a few seconds faster than me, but we are both in a tsunami headed towards death and there's nothing we can do about it. And Jesus jumped into the water to save us. He didn't just risk his life. He gave his life in our place as a payment for our sins so that we could be saved, forgiven, and reconciled back to God. If my sin is great, then the gospel will be great. And my response to that gospel will be great. I wasn't a Christian in the 90s. I became a Christian in like 02, Oh, three. Um, but, but I remember like one of the big terms in the 90s was that guy's on fire. 
You ever hear that before, man? That guy's on fire. That was, it, now it's like, oh, that person is wrecked. I'm wrecked for Jesus. Uh, they worship passionately. That's your generation says that kind of stuff. Cheesy stuff like that. I get wrecked for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus wrecked me during that sermon. I couldn't help but worship him on my knees. In the 90s, it was being on fire for Jesus. And sometimes, for me at least, at that point, somebody on fire was somebody who was very annoying. Um, you know, they were just always in your face. But, but I look at it, if somebody truly loves Jesus, they, there really will be a fire. I mean, the person with a vibrant faith in Jesus, they'll worship passionately without thought of what they sound like or look like. I first saw this in my friend Andy as a young believer, and Andy would belt out worship in a room like this. You would hear Andy. He, he just uninhibited, didn't care what he sounded like, and he was terribly off-key. It was horrible to sit next to him, but he didn't care because he loved Jesus. The person whose faith is vibrant, they're going to serve faithfully out of love and great, uh, gratefulness. They're going to share the gospel liberally, forgive easily, and love others relentlessly. And I think the kindling, here's what kindling is. It's the stuff that ignites a fire. The kindling of such faith of such fire is a deep and rich understanding of our sin and forgiveness. Now, sin, disobedience, trespasses, brokenness, whatever you want to call it, is not a popular topic to talk about in our culture. Most churches just ignore it altogether. They will not talk about sin. They'll talk about your purpose, the best that God has for you. You just got to trust him and believe, but they won't talk about sin. And, and I feel that churches that do that, they're really missing out on something very important. I think we're to confess our sin on a daily basis. We're to reflect on our sin, not in a morbid way. Let me, let me explain. But even Jesus tells us to confess our sin on a daily basis. The Lord's Prayer Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins. This was something that you were to say daily to God. And so the question is, is why? Why do I need to think about my sin? I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. Why do I need to go back to all this old junk? Shouldn't I just think positively? Well, it's not to be saved over and over again. It's not to be made right with God. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your sin was forgiven past present and future so when you sin god's not like i'm done with you until you confess you're 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 no good to me until you're honest about your junk that's not how god works the blood of jesus covers us we have been saved from our sin past present and future now i said that i just want to reaffirm that here is why i think it is a good idea to confess our sin confession continually reminds us of the goodness of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Confession continually reminds us of the goodness of the gospel. Reflect, confess, yes, feel sorrow for your sin, lament, but don't stay there. Now, some of you are like, man, this idea of, 
of confessing our sin, I don't like because I beat myself up every day. Some of you, you know, I said a lot of people in Castle Rock are like, you know, I'm a good person. I don't really need the gospel. A lot of us are like, I am a terrible person. I fall short on the regular. Your problem is, is when you confess, you're, you're, you're lamenting, but, but you stop there. And you can't stop there. You need to move past that to the gospel. So, so reflect, confess. Yes, lament, feel sorry for that sin, but quickly turn your heart to the work of Jesus Christ and new and fresh days, or new ways every day. You say, God, I've, I've fallen short in this area. I've been unkind to people that I love. I've given in to anger, and I feel sorrow for that. Yes, feel sorrow, but then move your heart to the idea that Jesus was kind and only displayed righteous anger, but he was known for his compassion and love, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness when we put our faith and trust in him. And so that sin is forgiven. God, I've, I've fallen short here, but I celebrate that the blood of Jesus has covered my sin. God, I've, I've messed up and, and, and lied here. Then you move your heart to the idea that we have a God who is full of truth, who offers forgiveness because of the work of Jesus Christ. Allow a vibrant love of Jesus to grow as you confess your sin and celebrate in new ways that you have been forgiven. 